Hello and welcome to the Bible and Me podcast brought to you by Precept UK. We are a charity based here in Salisbury focused mainly on Bible study resources and it's our mission to equip people to know God deeply and to live differently as a result. For more information, visit precept.org.uk. But firstly, I just want to start this off by saying a massive thank you to all of our listeners. We are so blessed now to be releasing Series 7 and we couldn't have got there without your incredible testimonies and reviews. If you aren't already, we would love it if you would consider subscribing so that you won't miss out on ordinary people with interesting stories about an extraordinary God. But without further ado, here's the podcast. Well, I'm delighted, uh, really delighted to be welcoming Bishop Michael J. Nazir Ali to the Bible in Me podcast today. Uh, Bishop Michael grew up in Pakistan, uh, in Karachi, and has both a Christian and Muslim family background. Uh, after university in Karachi, uh, where he studied economics, Islamic history and sociology. He, both, he studied both in Oxford and Cambridge uh, before being ordained as an Anglican priest in 1976. Uh, since then, he's had both a wide, varied and distinguished church and academic career. This has included being consecrated bishop, entering the House of Lords and speaking on such issues as stem cell research, euthanasia, marriage and also relations with Muslims. Bishop Michael also holds a number of earned as well as honorary doctorates. He's married to Valerie and together they have two grown sons. Uh, In his spare time, he enjoys cricket, hockey, Scrabble, music, detective fiction and poetry. So Bishop Michael, welcome to the program. Thank you, I'm delighted to be with you. Um, So Bishop Michael, how did you come to faith in Jesus Christ, and why, why do you follow him? Yes, well, um, as I think you've said already, I come from a large uh, Shia Muslim family, uh, and they are religious leaders. I mean, they have their own jobs, but in the community, they are religious leaders. Uh, My father uh, was the only one amongst them who was baptized uh, because uh, of his friends who brought him brought him to faith so we had we grew up in this situation with a large uh, muslim family with whom we had a lot to do and uh, my father uh, i came personally to faith as a result of the work of an anglican chaplain at the university of karachi now That's an interesting story in itself because religious leaders were forbidden to enter the campus. This was nothing to do with being anti-Christian or anything. It was even then to prevent radical Islamists from coming and disrupting um, what was going on in university life. So you may ask, well, how did he get onto the campus? And uh, what he did was he registered as a postgraduate student so you couldn't keep him out. <laughs> there's always a way. I mean, that's what I learned from, from him is that there's always a way in mission and ministry. And he uh, brought us, uh, many of us, uh, to faith, the living faith in Jesus Christ. And for me, anyway, he also became a model for ministry, that um, not to give up, always to look for ways uh, a, a word in edgeways sometimes for the gospel. Um, and um, when I felt a call to ministry, I 
I mean, he had a lot to do with it. Yeah, 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 wonderful. And what is it, um, I mean, so people may be listening to this thinking, what is it about Jesus yeah. that is worthy of following in your view? Yeah. Well, this is the key question. I mean, people often ask me, even now, um, in the family or with friends, uh, you know, why don't you follow this religion or that religion or this person or that person? And the answer that I give is really a very simple one. Show me someone like Jesus. <laughs> you see, um, show me someone like Jesus. And it is very difficult to do that for anyone. I mean, not just for Christians. So when we were, when I was at university uh, in, in Karachi, there were really uh, sort of three options, as it were, for students. Uh, one was, of course, Islamism, even at that time, uh, it divided the the campus right down the middle with some people wanting uh, to be uh, in that camp. And then, of course, there was also Marxism. Um, that was very attractive to young people because it offered uh, a way of dealing with poverty and many of the issues that people were facing. And the third then was the following of Jesus. Now, um, I was shown, and by my own reading of the Bible, uh, that there is no other way. Um, that uh, this is the, the way to follow um, for life here and for life ever, uh, ever after. Um, of course, I mean, that doesn't mean I'm not interested in other ways that people adopt. I, of course, sure. I am. And I, um, many of my friends have taken other paths, secular or religious, uh, and I maintain my friendship with them. Uh, and in that context, of course, I'm able to witness to them just as I listen to what they have to say. Yeah, wonderful. Now, um, after leaving school, you went to um, University of Karachi and you studied economics, Islamic history, sociology. Um, and after your time there, you went to England uh, to attend postgraduate studies in theology in Oxford. And you were ordained um, as priest in the Church of England. Um, how, how were you led to, to do that? Leave Pakistan, become a priest? Because that's quite a big decision to, to, you know, to leave your country, to, to go down that line. How did that, how did that happen? Yes, well, uh, I first went to Cambridge, actually, because I was offered a scholarship um, and um, then to Oxford again, because some people suggested that I should do further uh, postgraduate work. But then I went back to Pakistan. I was ordained in Pakistan, not in England, in the Church of Pakistan, uh, back to Karachi, in fact, um, and then uh, worked there uh, in a theological college teaching there and then in parishes. And then I went to Lahore to the cathedral there, which is um, quite a central place in the city. And from there I became a bishop. So yeah, I think it was the a sense of calling as a vocation, uh, which uh, was engendered by the work that I saw this chaplain doing, involvement with him and others in student work, um, bringing students um, to faith and discipling them and so on, which I was doing already. And that made me think that I should go into 
um, into ordained ministry. Yeah, wonderful. Now, now you've mentioned you you had a scholarship to go to Cambridge, and mm. you, you also went to Oxford. I mean, were you were you always academic from from a young boy? Um, and also, you've done a lot of teaching, haven't you, in universities and colleges? So, so two questions really. Were you always academic? Um, and also, what motivates you to teach in universities and colleges? What, what do you like about doing that? Yeah, well, I mean, have you always been an academic? I'm, I don't know. I mean, I don't think so. I, I, uh, when I look back at my uh, life in school, at least as a teenager and then in university, the amount of time I wasted um, uh, my wife Valerie always says, "Well, it wasn't wasted, but in sport and you know, reading novels and going to the cinema and all this kind of thing." Um, so I wasn't academic. I mean, the bookish sense, certainly not. I wish I had been. I think I would have done better if I had. But um, yeah, but well, I think all of this has to do with vocation. So I came to Cambridge really to make sense of my faith and to learn how to communicate it to, to others. And Oxford, I particularly went to because I wanted to learn um, much more about the Islamic tradition than I knew. I mean, I knew it sort of in the ordinary sense of the word, but, but not deeply, because I wanted to learn how to communicate the gospel to my Muslim relatives and friends in a way that they could understand. So that was yeah. the motivation there. Mm. And in my teaching, that has always been at the forefront of my heart and mind. Um, so if I teach in seminaries, for instance, it should prepare other people for mission and ministry, uh, but always with this in mind, how to make the gospel understood by people who may not otherwise easily understand it. Now, obviously, in the secular West, that means one thing in Iran and Pakistan and other places where I worked, it means something else. Uh, but that's that's really been the yeah. motive. Yeah, wonderful. Um, what a gift. What a gift to be able to do that. Um, now, you became the youngest bishop, I understand, in the Anglican Communion uh, at the age of 35 uh, and served in um, a place just south of Lahore in northeast Pakistan in the mid-1980s. Uh, and then uh, the then Archbishop of Canterbury, Robert Runsey, had to arrange for you to come back uh, to England, sort of, sort of, I don't know whether it was an, uh, for your own safety or, or what, why was that? What, what was going on at that time? Why did you have to sort of be rescued, as it were? Yeah. Well, the thing about being the youngest bishop, of course, is that you don't remain that for very long. <laughs> You're <laughs> overtaken by other people. Um, yeah, what, well, there were several things that happened. One was that the then um, president of Pakistan, General Ziaul Haq, uh, about whom you may know, was rapidly Islamicizing the country. Well, the president, General Ziaul Haq, was at that time bringing in various uh, punishments for offenders uh, that are prescribed under Islamic law. And he asked the Christian churches the National Council of Churches, for our response to this. Well, I was very young, and the other leaders uh, persuaded me to write the paper, <laughs> in which actually I relied on C.S. Lewis's uh, very fine essay on punishment, 
in which he said that uh, punishment in the Christian sense can never be just about deterrence. Uh, it has to fit the crime. That's the first thing. So the, ret the retribution has to fit uh, the seriousness of the crime. Secondly, there must always be the possibility of reform. Uh, and thirdly, of rehabilitation. Now, clearly punishments that mutilate people or put an end to their life or whatever don't have those dimensions. And so we were able, I was, well, I said that in my paper and uh, he was not pleased by, by this. Um, then we were also uh, cooperating with women, Muslim women mainly, but also Christians, who were struggling at that time because this process of Islamization was narrowing what they could do in life, academically, uh, in employment, and so on. And I remember an occasion when I was at the cathedral still, uh, Lahore Cathedral, there was a demonstration of women outside the high court, uh, which was baton charged by the police, you know, with those steel-tipped sticks that they have. So we opened the cathedral gates, let the women in, and then shut them again, um, leaving the police outside. Uh, thirdly, um, I had begun some work with many other people on uh, rescuing bonded labor in the brick kilns. Now, the, the owners were fine with us as long as we conducted services for these um, people and so on. But when we began to uh, show them a way out of the bonded labor, uh, with the help of many friends, uh, then all hell was let loose. So it was a combination of uh, circumstances, really. Uh, I mean, I got used to the harassment, but I think what motivated people like Archbishop Runcie was that they began to threaten the children who were very young at that time. I mean, not threaten them directly, but anonymously yeah. to us and so on. So he said, look, uh, you know, this is looking serious and why don't you come out for a little while? I've got a job. He wanted someone to do the coordination for the coming Lambeth Conference, which is a 10-year conference of Anglican bishops from all over the world. And he needed someone who was not English to do it because, of course, he himself was, was English or Scottish anyway. Um, so that's really how it happened. Yes. Yeah, so you came back. Gosh, gosh. Yeah. Now, um, you um, in 1994, you were appointed um, Bishop of Rochester. And also in 1999, uh, you entered the House of Lords as one of the Lords spiritual. Mm. Uh, now, there may be people listening to this that don't really understand what a Lord spiritual is. Um, yes, well, there are Lord Spiritual who don't understand what a Lord Spiritual is. <laughs> <laughs> so um, what, what's your understanding of a Lord Spiritual? And, and how does your Christian faith, I think this will be interesting to people, play out in the House of Lords? Yes. Well, I think a, a bit of history first. I mean, uh, the the story of Parliament in Britain is that the king... Um, was um, persuaded, I think is the word, to appoint advisors 
most of whom at that time were bishops, as it happens, or clerics of other kind, because they were the only people who could read and write. Right. Um, so the, the first parliaments already had bishops in them. Um, and uh, even before the commons were created and so on. So when people say to me, which they do sometimes, why are bishops in the House of Lords? I say, well, actually, you know, they started it. And, uh, I mean, everyone else is welcome, but that's another <laughs> um, So, you know, their, their role is, is very old. Um, number of things. I mean, um, the, the, the first is that um, if... Well, I found that there were many bills that came to Parliament that had a spiritual or moral dimension, that had something to do with human dignity uh, or the purpose of human life. Um, when does human life or the human person begin? Uh, can we bring to an end to someone's life? I mean, you know, again, it's the in a very different way from the question being posed by Islamic law. Uh, do do human you know one set of human beings have the right to put an end to someone else's life? Uh, these questions are arising all the time in medical bills and social bills, um, uh, even in in political matters. Now, when a bishop gets up, you know the House of Lords is a self-regulating chamber. That's um, that's a euphemism. That means there's the speaker doesn't control the house. The house regulates itself. So sometimes on a particular point, there are several people standing to speak. Hmm. The house then has to indicate which one it wants to hear. And if a bishop is standing, the house will often want the bishop first, not because they'll end up agreeing with the bishop, but they, they want to at least to listen to what the point of view is. I found that very valuable. There's opportunity to ballot for debates and you know, I done that. Um, there's the opportunity to ask topical questions every day. Uh, and again, you know, with persecution of Christians or uh, of other people, indeed, um, other people of other faiths or of none, um, economic issues, uh, spiritual issues, you can ask um, questions of the government and get an answer. And then that gets that thought into the minds of ministers. Um, there's a lot of pastoral work that goes on and witnessing work outside the chamber. Um, the, um, there used to be a room, I don't know if it still exists, but called the Hume Room, where you could buy sort of public school food very cheaply. And um, you know what I mean, sausages and mash and pudding. <laughs> um, the only requirement was that there was a long table and you had to sit next to whoever, you know, wherever the next vacant chair was. So I found myself, I'm sure other people do as well, uh, sitting next to all sorts of uh, politicians and other people. And then, of course, you have to talk to them. And uh, the, the conversations were very, very interesting and very helpful from the Christian point of view. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Um, now, You've been uh, an advocate for a greater prominence of the Christian faith in public life. Why is this important to you? Well, because I, I think the Christian faith affects every aspect of human life. It's not just limited 
to any one of them. Uh, but in this context, in Britain uh, particularly, there are two reasons. I think one is uh, God's general providence in the ordering of society, in the creating of the great human institutions that provide society with stability. Uh, the family, for instance, um, government, for example, um, law, all of those things. And so if God uh, has provided these in, uh, in his goodwill, then Christians ought to have something to say about them. Secondly, uh, Britain has explicitly and still does in the coronation service, for instance, uh, claim to be a, a nation founded on the gospel and its values. Um, of course, it is free to deny that at any time, but it hasn't done so yet. And until it does so, uh, please God, it, it won't do so. Uh, but until it does so, we have the right to bring gospel values to bear on national life. I think those are the two reasons. Yeah, fantastic. Fantastic. Wonderful to hear that. Now, your interest in theology stretches far and wide. Uh, to some extent, you've been a spokesman for the engagement between Christianity and Islam. Um, why are you involved? Uh, and what are the issues that you would say unite us? And what are the issues where perhaps we need more grace and compassion uh, to move forward? I think, uh, I mean, uh... When I go into the Islamic world, there is uh, a natural awareness of the spiritual. Now, this cuts both ways. It can be dangerous as well. But there is an awareness of the spiritual, which I find lacking in the West very often. Uh, that sometimes I, f I feel that people, especially in Britain and Europe generally, uh, have lost that faculty of spiritual awareness, which, which is a great pity, but it is true for many people. Uh, I find that spiritual awareness is, a, is conducive to conversation. Uh, so you can easily introduce spiritual subjects without people blinking an eyelid. Whereas here they get embarrassed and, you know, all this kind of thing. Um, God, I mean, we are told in the Bible that God has revealed himself um, in, in creation, and he has also revealed himself in people's consciences. However much that awareness is distorted by human rebellion and obstinacy, it is there, it's not been destroyed. In the case of Islam, I also think there is uh, a kind of reflected uh, aspect of biblical revelation in some of the prophets, for instance, in what Islam says about Jesus, even though some of it is not right from our point of view, but some of it is. And um, <clears throat> all of these can be um, ways in to uh, speaking of Christ uh, in that setting. Uh, then uh, I'm also very interested in how Christians and Muslims together build build a common um, community where they live together and that's increasing in many parts of the world uh, whether it's britain or nigeria or pakistan or egypt uh, you know christians and muslims have to learn to live together and yeah. to respect each other's freedoms mm. 
So I think that commitment, that mutual commitment to fundamental freedoms is another thing that drives what I do in the, in the area of in, interfaith and particularly Muslim-Christian dialogue. Yeah. I mean, I don't believe in kissy-kissy dialogue, you know, where we pat each other on the back. Yeah. And, but, but to raise the hard questions in life mm. on both mm. sides. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, very good. Now, I mean, one thing I'm guessing that Islam and Christianity would, would agree about is, uh, is the business about marriage and that marriage is between uh, a man uh, and a woman. Um, and, it, and it teaches that the Bible teaches that homosexuality, for instance, is sinful. Um, what would you say has led many in our nation to take issue with these biblical standards? Because yeah. clearly that is going on at a never increasing pace. I think it's an abandoning of a pattern that is given in our existence and that is confirmed by revelation. So that marriage is between a man and a woman is something that is given in creation and it is confirmed by revelation. Um, with Islam, I, I'm in a sort of quandary about this because there are some things about marriage in Islam with which we agree, but there are some where we don't like for instance, the permission to polygamy yeah. uh, or child marriage or, you know, there are many or divorce. Um, I mean, the Christian view of marriage is very different. When I would be um, uh, officiating at a Christian marriage in Pakistan, for example, uh, and there would be Muslim women attending, um, I always chose uh, St. Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, as one of the texts because um, I was asked repeatedly by Muslim women, is, is this really what you believe, that um, uh, uh, marriage is between a man and a woman and what God has joined together, let no one uh, separate and so on? I said, well, yes, you've just heard what Jesus said. Uh, because for them, uh, this is good news. You know, I mean, they live in the perpetual insecurity of divorce. So, yeah, I mean, our agreement is there, but it's limited. I think my, many of my Muslim friends have been very shocked by what has happened in the West uh, with regard to sexuality and uh, in the churches, indeed. And they have said to me, they have said, you know, we like talking to you, but if your churches continue to do what we think they're doing, we, our people will not let us talk to you. I mean, I find that very shameful. Uh, to to be told that by leaders in, in the Muslim world. Um, so, yeah, I think my point of departure here is that in creation and in revelation, we are given a pattern of who human beings are, of human identity made in God's image, made as man and woman, made for a common purpose, which each fulfills distinctively. Yeah. Um, you know, men are not women, women are not men, but yeah. they've been made together uh, for the sake of one another and for the sake of children. Now, um, what has happened in the West is a kind of constructivism that you can make yourself in any image that you like, not God's image, but any image that you like. Uh, you can be fluid about that. Uh, you can change who you are from one day to the next. Uh, 
and all of this. Now, of course, we are all sinners. You know, uh, no one is um, sort of claiming the high ground or anything like this. We've all failed in terms of God's purposes for us in our sexual expression. But that should not detract us from what that purpose is. Um, and um, to say clearly on what is human identity based uh, and what is God's purpose of the relationship between men and women uh, and indeed between men and men and women and women, well, you know, healthy friendships, for instance. Uh, one of the things that um, I found in the Western world increasingly is that because there is a very early heterosexual pairing off, um, uh, same-sex friendships suffer. Because then, you know, once people have paired off with a girlfriend or a boyfriend, then they don't have that much time for their own friends of the same sex. And I think some of this is behind the malaise that uh, you are talking about. And I think we ought to strengthen same-sex friendships while at the same time saying that uh, sexual intercourse, uh, sexual relationship is limited to man and woman in a committed uh, relationship of being one flesh. Yes. Were, were you involved in the debate in, in the House of Lords when, when they were changing um, the legislation regarding um, yeah. marriage? You were. Many times, yes. And, and how was that for you? I mean, being a strong well, Christian and, you know, you must have really, I mean, I'm sure you stood up and debated and put the Christian point of view forward. But, but when the legislation was changed, I mean, how did you feel about that? Yeah, well, um, I mean, on the age of consent, for instance. So the overwhelming evidence is that human beings are not sexually mature uh, to make the sorts of decisions that were being asked of them uh, at that age, at the age of 16. And um, the, uh, the argument at that time from the British Medical Association, I remember, was that um, it ought to be lowered because the average age of sexual um, experience, same-sex sexual experience, is 15 point something years. So my uh, response to that was, well, if the average is 15 point something, that means some people are having this experience at an earlier age. <laughs> so are you then going to argue, you know, to push yeah, it yeah. back, as indeed yeah. it has been in some European countries? On the civil partnerships thing, when that came, came first as a bill, what uh, some of us did in the House of Lords was to move an amendment that widened uh, the catchment, as it were. So to say, well, all right, because the government was saying at the time, this is to relieve people of hardship in visiting their partners, in inheriting tenancy and those sorts of things. So we said, that's fine. Let's broaden it to include everyone who has a legitimate reason for living together. These might be two sisters, or it might be a mother and a daughter, uh, and so on. And actually, our amendment was passed. Um, hmm. And I remember the minister in charge telling me after the debate, you've just ruined our social policy. 
And I said, well, that's so much the worse for your social policy. Uh, of course, the matter was then went back to the commons and was reversed there. But yeah. so, yeah, of course, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, the, 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 these issues are, are they, they do cause much division, don't they, amongst churches and the Anglican communion especially. Mm -hmm. um, what is your view of the Anglican communion globally, and, and more specifically, I guess here here in the UK, and how? What, what's God doing through this, do you think? Uh, and it may be just that it's reported in the press, all these issues, these moral issues, and, and we hear, oh, you know, the Anglican community is going to split and the African church's bishops are going to be doing this. And it's, it's, it doesn't seem a very happy picture, certainly from those looking in on it. I mean, you're a senior, you're a very senior bishop. And um, what's, your, what's your view on all of this? What's God doing, do you think? Yeah, I think this is very regrettable. I think this is not God doing it. I think this is someone else doing it. Um, and because we were at the point of really uh, achieving under God a worldwide communion based on the gospel, based on sound apostolic teaching and tradition throughout the world. Uh, and this has come and disrupted that um, radically. So, of course, the Anglican communion... In, in one sense, has split already. Um, the churches in Africa, in parts of Asia, Southeast Asia, uh, for instance, um, in parts of South America, are certainly not in fellowship with people uh, who have um, revised um, the church's teaching on marriage, for instance, uh, who have questioned the uniqueness of Jesus Christ, uh, where church discipline for clergy uh, is um, non-existent now. So, th I mean, that's, you know, that has happened, unfortunately. Um, and um, unless there is repentance, um, I don't see how we can turn it back. Um, yeah, I mean, um, in this country, the Church of England uh, has to take a view uh, together but whether it's just going to be a servant of the culture or whether it is going to question the culture at some points. Now, I am a great advocate, as I was saying earlier, of relating to culture, of trying to understand what culture is saying and to present the gospel in that context. And there are some things about life today that, that are good. I mean, uh, freedom for people, a concern for people's basic welfare, the provision of medicine, universal education. I mean, all of these things in society that are taken for granted, the church has had a lot to do with them. Yeah. But um, where um, uh, culture has come to a point where people are being allowed not only to construct their own identities, but to reconstruct the family, the so basic unit of society, um, where uh, young people are being confused by what I mean, you know, we can't. So the church has to take a stand against that, and to do that, it has to be clear about what God has revealed in the Bible uh, to us, and which the church has taught continually in its two thousand years of history. Yes. Um, yeah, and we continue to pray and struggle uh, on all of these matters. 
Sure, sure, absolutely. Now, you're currently the president of the Oxford Centre for Training, Research, Advocacy and Dialogue, whose mission is to prepare Christians for ministry in situations where the church is under pressure or, or in danger of persecution even. Um, yeah. The aims are to face rather than avoid the hard issues uh, and equip the church to engage in a dialogue with Islam in a biblical and respectful manner. Um, how, what success have you had with Oxtrad? Well, under God, um, considerable, really. Uh, first of all, we've been able, where it's possible, to establish institutions or to strengthen institutions that are preparing people for mission and ministry in difficult contexts. That is possible in places like Pakistan or Egypt, um, for instance. In other places like Iran, where that is not possible, uh, we have to find other ways of preparing people. Um, and uh, we, we've been able to do that. Um, to identify some key teachers uh, who can do research at doctoral level and then you know, be teachers in their own context, as, as I was myself. Yes. And that has been, uh, under God, um, blessed. Um, that kind of thing then also brings us into uh, questions about uh, how to equip young people for mission, or how to enable Christians in pressurized settings to enter business, for instance. Um, we've just had a consultation on medical mission, uh, how that is a way of Christian service and witness in yeah. those contexts. Yes. And we were planning to have something on education, which is, all again, another vital area, but we were prevented by the pandemic. Let's hope we can have something like that in the future. Um, so wonderful. Lots of, lots of different ways. Lots of different ways. You're, yeah. Um, now, uh, Bishop Michael, when I asked you uh, before the interview, if there was any significant event or personal matter which you may wish to share, you cited, um, interestingly, being given what to say at critical times. And you, and you cited Mark 13, uh, chapter 11. Um, mm. are there some, do you have any sort of things that come to mind about, about, about that? Yes, um, I think from time to time um, I have been given uh, what to say. Um, so um, two, two incidents come to mind. I was once um, visited by some radical Islamists with whom I'd been in dialogue uh, for a long time, who came that day and immediately said, can you tell us something about the mothers of the believers, who are the, the wives of the Prophet of Islam? And uh, I immediately said, you know, they are your mothers, you tell me about them, I can tell you something about the mother of Jesus. So I think that, you know, that was something that had been that was that was given to me. Um, talking to a very prominent ayatollah in Iran, um, uh, we talked of this and that, and then he said, "Oh, but um, Christians believe that 
God is the Messiah. And which is what the Quran actually says. So I said, no, no, Christians don't believe God is the Messiah. So he said, well, what do, what do they believe then? So I said, well, the Christians believe that the Messiah is God. And uh, so he said, what's the difference? So I was then able to expound the doctrine of the Trinity to him. <laughs> Uh, because he'd asked for it. He was very interested. His servant came in in the middle and said, it's time for the afternoon prayer. And he said, just wait, this is very important. So Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah. So there's just two examples. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I understand you enjoy playing and watching sport. Um, a man after my own heart, I have to say. And cricket is amongst them. Yeah. So, so my question is, whose side are you on when England is playing Pakistan? Yeah. Well, you're, I guess uh, you're, you're in a win-win yeah. situation, really, aren't you? <laughs> well, yes. Um, our household is divided. My wife is Scots. So if it's a question of Scotland playing England, she, of course, supports Scotland, as did her father. Um, one of our sons who lives in Pakistan, in Lahore, supports Pakistan. The other supports England. Um, so, you know, I mean, I've said this to Norman Tebbit on many occasions. When Pakistan is playing, I support Pakistan. If Pakistan is not playing, I support the underdog. Okay, but what about when England is playing Pakistan? Yeah, I think I'd support Pakistan, though one <laughs> of my sons would support England. So we have an interesting... <laughs> now... Um... We're coming into land on this, but I just I do want to ask you the question that I ask all all the people on the podcast. Why is the word of God important to you? Well, um, there are so many um, reasons. Um, it is through God's word that we know what we know about God in its fullness. Uh, I was saying that I follow Jesus. Well, how do I know who is Jesus? I know who is Jesus uh, because of the Bible, because of predictions of him in the Old Testament, the Gospels that tell the story uh, of his life here on earth, uh, the rest of the New Testament that tells us of his significance and his coming again and so on. That's how I know who Jesus is. Um, of course, I use God's word to um, bring him to uh, mind in society. Um, I use God's word to preach ab uh, about him in the church. Uh, I use God's word for personal guidance and inspiration and prayer. Uh, and I use God's word to witness to people. So, you know, a whole number of ways in which yeah. it is central. Yeah, amen, amen. How do you, how do you go about studying it, actually? Do you have a, do you have a, and I guess, you know, it depends on the setting, isn't it, in which you're, you're going to be expanding it, but, but how yeah. do you personally study it? Well, for, for sermons, for instance, um, I've got to prepare two coming up in Lent. Um, I first read the Hebrew and the Greek texts of the Old and the New Testament. Then I read uh, a good commentary or sometimes deliberately a commentary with which I disagree so that I have answers in my mind about things that are raised. Um, and then I think about it for whatever time I have uh, before. I, I never write down sermons. 
So I'm thinking about them right to the time that I preach them, uh, which keeps them, I find, fresh. And also it gives me eye contact with the congregation, which, which is worth a great deal. Um, yeah, so that's how really. Yeah, wonderful. And do you, do, you, do you have set times for your, if you're going to preach in a church, for instance, do you have in your mind a set time that you do that for, or that varies a lot, I suppose? Well, preparation of any kind should be done when you're fresh. So the mornings usually, um, but of course, if I run out of time or there are other engagements and I have to do them at other times, sometimes even in the car. Um, I mean, one of the advantages of having been a, a diocesan bishop in the Church of England was that I had a chauffeur. So I did all, a lot of my work in the car. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we were talking about uh, before the interview, weren't we, about uh, you were asking about a little bit about the, the work that we're involved with with, with the precept and, and the importance of teaching people really how to how to study the Bible. I mean, we, we, yeah. we may take it for granted that people know how to study the Bible, but there's a difference between reading it and really studying it. I mean, you mentioned uh, you go back to the Hebrew and the Greek and, you know, not everybody's gifted enough to be able to do that. Mm. Um, and it's one of the passions that we have as a ministry is to equip people with those simple, practical effective tools to be able to take it from above reading to actually studying what God's word says because God's word as you said is so important yes um, and I think without even knowing the original languages I think it is possible nowadays with explanation and commentary for people to follow um, what is actually meant what is behind the text what is in the text and then what is in front of the text about what we do with it um, one way that I found helpful is, uh, devotionally, as it were, is to read something, a you know, small portion of the scriptures, and then to think about it for the rest of the day and to see how it might affect what I'm doing for the rest of the day. I don't know if you use that. No, that's a great sort of um, a great idea to do that. Yes. Yeah, I'll try that. <laughs> yeah, do, yeah. uh, thank you. Do, you. do you have a favorite book of the Bible or character, particularly, that is sort of like your sort of your hero? Uh, do, you do you have a favorite uh, Bible book, uh, uh, one of the 66 books, or character in the Bible at all? Uh, you mean in the Old Testament or the New? Uh, either, either, either. Just any, in the any Old one. Testament, the, the one that I use, I, I suspect this is true of many people, the one that I use the most uh, are the Psalms. Uh, but the book that I preach the most about is Isaiah, actually, I think if I were um, honest. In the New Testament, the Gospel of John, certainly. Yeah. Yeah, and what about a favorite verse? Do you have a Do you have a favorite Bible verse, like a mm. life verse or anything like that at all? Um, you were right. Well, let's think. Um, um, what might be a um, yes? Uh, one in in John's Gospel, actually, in chapter twelve, where Jesus says, "When I am lifted up, I will draw everyone to myself." I think that's um, that would count as one of them. That would count as one of them. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, um, 
Uh, Bishop Michael, it's been a real privilege to be able to speak to you today. Um, I'm very grateful for the time that you've given me. Uh, thank you, thank you for what you have done, what you are doing, and, and what you will be doing uh, on behalf of the kingdom of God and to uh, build bridges, um, to keep dialogue going, to preach the gospel. Um, I think it's uh, it's amazing, actually, how the Lord has led you and um, given you those opportunities to to share your mm. faith. Mm. So, um, well, thank, thank you, you very so much. much, Nigel. Yeah, thank you, and uh, every blessing in your ministry and every prayer for it. Well, thank you, and and for you too.